Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. So, Tramel, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on board, sir. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who do you work for? What do you do? Well, presently, I'm CTO of a company called Taxbit. And Taxbit really focuses on enabling tax and accounting solutions for digital assets, cryptocurrencies at all. Uh, and my journey, I think, has been a little atypical, but uh, it is mine. And so I enjoyed talking about it. I started off in Michigan and the United States. That's where I was born. Lived there until I was 16, ran off to University of Pennsylvania. And then uh, after three years at Penn, decided to actually drop out of school to move to Japan and work as a software engineer. Worked in Tokyo for a little bit over a year and then came back to the States, uh, commuting back and forth between the States and Tokyo for another year. Uh, I founded a company, sold a company, went to a couple of failed startups after that, and then went on this journey of vacillating between engineering and marketing of all disciplines uh, for a few years, uh, where I was actually an account director for a few advertising agencies here and there, uh, and then eventually ended up in core engineering, uh, or as some like to say these days, hardcore engineering, and uh, found my way through a number of organizations, Nintendo, F5 Networks, now known as F5, uh, Stripe, where I was the site lead for Stripe Seattle and ran a few engineering teams. And then here at Textbit, where I'm enjoying the now almost one year of tenure that I've had. Wow, wow. And we're gonna go into Textbit in a minute, but what a journey. I'm really curious about the fail startups. It's always interesting to see what lessons can be learned from that. Were there any lessons that you learned yeah, sure. Uh, and I, I think it probably wouldn't do any harm to mention the names given that the companies are, are long gone now. But uh, I totally agree that failure is such a great educator and such a great opportunity to learn. Uh, just as an aside, I, I, I'm a student of a couple of languages, uh, Japanese, probably unsurprisingly. And uh, of course, when learning a second language, the best way to learn is to literally immerse yourself and make mistakes so that you understand how to correct grammar, vocabulary, et cetera. And I think similarly, when you're in any function, but perhaps more importantly, those where you are in a technical discipline, uh, you're, you're going to learn from failures and iterate and grow because that's really the only way to sort of have that trial by fire, as they say, to understand what patterns work, what patterns don't work and what things might hopefully fight against the tide of, of the default outcome of failure, especially for startups. And so in the long ago, the, the many years before we actually had names for these things, I worked in a couple of companies that we today would probably call digital marketing enterprises, that is uh, building 
interactive websites at that time, CD-ROMs uh, and other interactive media properties. And the whole idea was to help other organizations or enable other organizations to take advantage of this new thing that people were investing in, building their own websites or brand sites or Halo sites in order to proffer their brands out to the masses. And though there was a lot of money to be made in that space, there were also a lot of companies in that space and a lot of competition. And so uh, the, the thing I learned, I think primarily in those experiences is when you are doing something and there's a lot of interest, you clearly must have some unique property about your organization or your intent or what you proffer so that wherever there may be competition or wherever, you know, you, you think about perhaps if you're a student of business or business literature, the, the five forces model, and you think about sort of the strength of competitors and you think about the opportunity for substitutes. And there were, again, a lot of competitors. And then there were a lot of substitutes. There were companies who were deciding, well, you know what, why would I pay this agency to, to build this property for me when I can just do it in house? And uh, a lot of large enterprises did decide to do that. And so you could start to see slowly but surely, and then more rapidly, the total addressable market starting to dry up and companies like Organic and uh, US Web and many of the names that folks from the uh, 2008, 2009 and prior 2000 crashes can probably instantly recall and remember that also that those companies are no longer around. Wow. Uh, yes. And so, yes, indeed, we learned many lessons. Yeah, I can imagine it was an exciting time. <laughs> uh, for a lot of people, you know, and I guess it was a bit of a rush, like a gold rush almost to get into that space. Yes. And I think we see that often, those gold rushes. Right now, presently, we're, we're seeing it around AI and ML, right? There, there's a lot of interest in a lot of companies. And sort of the narrative is you want to be the person selling the picks and shovels during the gold rush. So I would offer a, a proposition slash uh, perhaps a, a bit of a, uh, it's a guess, but I, I think it's an informed guess. The companies that are going to do well in this current uh, sort of very auspicious and interesting and intriguing nature of, of open uh, efforts to, to replicate what OpenAI has done with ChatGT or what Google's doing with Bard, the companies that are really going to be successful are the ones that build ML infrastructure and build tools and services that uh, support the very many companies that are going to jump into the arena. Yeah, I love it. I love the analogy that you made, you know, selling the picks and shovels is where the money's going to be made. So now coming on to the company, Taxbit, what's the problem that it's solving in the market? Yeah, so I think digital assets are themselves quite interesting. And, and I will say first and foremost that there are a lot of skeptics within the, the ecosystem, both intrinsic to the ecosystem and those external to the ecosystem. And I think that they're probably giving healthy skepticism to the certainly cryptocurrency space uh, because we have seen fraud and we have seen uh, so-called rug pulls. Uh, we've seen a lot of criminal elements sort of uh, with audacious brazen nature just popping up and trying to uh, enrich themselves at the expense of the retail investor or other enterprises. And of course, we have the examples of Mt. Gox and FTX failed exchanges that not only failed from an enterprise perspective, but also impacted many, many uh, users, scores of users in, in the wake of their demise. But what I think is also true is that there is 
uh, there, there. Digital assets, uh, again, cryptocurrencies at all. And, and I say digital assets as a an all-encompassing category because we, we hyper-focus on cryptocurrencies. We see cryptocurrencies in the news quite a bit, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. Sure. But the notion that you can tokenize any asset and turn that tokenized asset into something that is tradable, exchangeable, and then have some level of identity and ownership against that asset is really the, the thing that one we see as the first postulate sort of the first axiomatic statement that one can make that okay you can digitalize assets and you can trade those assets and that property is likely not going away that's something that's going to exist in perpetuity it's here and and if you hate it i'm sorry but it's not going away now Cryptocurrencies in their current form, they may go away. They, they may be supplanted by central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, or some other substitute, but it's probably not going to go away. And so the second axiomatic statement that we can make is probably governments are going to be very curious if their constituencies are dabbling and or utilizing these digital assets. And they're going to want to know that there's safety for their constituents. They're going to want to know that there is some level of protection so that they're and compliance so that there are not folks misusing or abusing uh, these assets for money laundering or uh, any sort of other nefarious means. And their tax agencies are probably going to want to see if there's any remunerative advantage for them. That is, can they collect tax and duties as a result of the exchange and trading of these assets? So TaxBit focuses on that last part. We look at the compliance problem that digital assets present, and then we offer tools and services and consultation to help enterprises primarily, but also the public sector, reason around how they will build a scaffolding for handling those questions of compliance, taxation, and accounting. If you're carrying digital assets on your books, mm. what sort of sub-ledger solution will you need in order to interface with your larger ERP solution so that you can recognize those assets when you're closing your books? If you have uh, an exchange or if you have NFTs that you're offering, or if there's some other digital asset service or system or product that you're mm -hmm. delving into and your users are going to need to pay their taxes at the end of the year because those assets have gained in value, then making sure you have W8s, W9s, 1099s, all of the different documents, at least in the United States, but similar in other countries that recognize who the customer is and then how they are going to pay their duties and or taxes at the end of the year, you're going to need a software solution for that. And if there are other things that your, your, uh, municipal or government organization need in order to understand, well, who's trading what and are they actually recognizing revenue and any value that they've incurred or any losses that they've incurred? Um, perhaps they want to audit uh, a few of those individuals in order to understand and go deeper into what has transpired on these on-chain, very public, very visible transactions. Then you're going to need software in order to do that. And TaxBit exists to provide those solutions for those use cases. Fascinating. I would never have thought there was a need for this, but suddenly I realized there is a huge need because the world is changing. And I guess this has been a huge disruption in the kind of financial market, a change. And I guess it's left loads of gaps where people really don't know what to do. And how quickly is that gap being worked on to close it? Is it being kind of left wide open and nobody really knew what to do? And now companies like yourself are closing that? Yeah, I think it's interesting that 
like most things, uh, the, the retail investor was the focus of the ecosystem uh, for quite some time because, again, so-called bull markets where a lot of retail investors due to a variety of reasons, some might say fear of missing out, some might say speculation, and others might say just there were a lot of people sitting at home during the last pandemic that we all are still sort of reeling from, and they had uh, savings and nothing to do with those savings. And so they started mm-hmm. you know, speculating. And and what you saw was just a lot of folks, again, from, from a retail perspective, that is the individual investor participating in this digital asset ecosystem without a whole lot of knowledge about it. And uh, to be fair, again, to give credence to perhaps the, the skeptics within the ecosystem, there were folks that were just trying to get rich quick and mm-hmm. not really taking into consideration the fact that, oh, this is, this is value and that value is increasing. And when you have an asset that increases in value, at least in North America, and, and I think quite frankly, pretty much throughout the world, yes. <laughs> the, the government is, your government is going to look at that and go, uh, you probably owe taxes on that. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and we should probably have a way of collecting those taxes. So the, the retail investor got a lot, or the retail customer got a lot of interests and a lot of investment and there were a lot of solutions popping up and and still to this day you you have uh companies like coin trackers and ledger uh, innumerable number of uh consumer tax software solution providers uh, and, and the tagline is typically the same that hey you, you're dealing with these cryptocurrencies you are either going to have an opportunity for tax loss harvesting that is you you've lost money and so you can reduce your tax burden or you likely have a tax bill due and we'll help you sort of normalize and actualize and then pay and submit wow. those yeah. taxes uh, and what we saw was that yes that that was indeed a few years ago, maybe five years plus ago, a huge opportunity. But what we also saw were institutional investors and industry, like entire industries, starting to take a look at blockchain technology and taking a look at the digital asset space and starting to build solutions and services for their customers that would also incur these same similar type of taxation and accounting burdens, but no one Literally no one was offering them solutions to recognize what that burden was and to then have a salient conversation with their tax authorities. Mm-hmm. And what we've decided to do is to basically let the the many multiple players who are addressing the consumer base, let them have that. Like we think that's a brilliant place to play and there's definitely money to be made there. But our focus is really on the enterprise and again on the public sector, helping companies and organizations by and large who have many multiples of users to rationalize and understand how they take those assets, those digital asset programs that they're developing and build a scaffolding for tax and accounting, but also for the institutions that collect those taxes or maybe have uh, some sort of legislation or some sort of compliance constraint that all of those players need to comport to to help them also with software solutions because at the end of the day, the digital asset problem, the core problem, it's a large or, if you will, big data problem. It's a data rationalization, normalization and extraction, transformation and loading problem. And you really need to understand sort of the, the core uh, most of the um, if you will, the large data variances and, and vagaries that exist within the ecosystem, but also the corner and edge cases, which there are so many of. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in fact, within the Ethereum space, you can literally write 
if your you, your listeners are not as familiar with what a smart contract is, they're they're likely very familiar with traditional databases. Basically, a smart contract is a stored procedure that you can write on top of an open ledger. And so there there's a Turing complete program that's running as you put your transaction on that open ledger and all sorts of different things can happen. And so understanding, again, all of the vagaries of the things that could occur and then normalizing that into a tax basis or some sort of credit and debit within a sub ledger is a non-trivial problem. And that's the problem that we're solving. Fantastic, I love it. So Tramail, the follow-on question I have from that, and a curiosity question, is that with things like cryptocurrency and the like, a lot of this stuff has some level or, or no transparency about it. How do you know what's being exchanged? What's the digital assets being exchanged and what the value is? And then work out the taxes from that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So if I can, I'll, I'll zoom out a bit and, and tell you a bit about what are some of the principles behind this, this if you will, change in uh, value of both the, the, the asset and perhaps even the, the ethos. So uh, if you will, the, the values of the those who might want to participate in this ecosystem, that is that the players within it, but both the investors and the miners, the, the exchange owners and so on and so forth. So uh, there there is famously a paper published by a synonymous uh, presenter or participant within the ecosystem, Satoshi, who, uh, you know, almost 12 years ago now published the, the seminal Bitcoin paper, a uh, very short paper, very easy to read and absorb paper. There's a little bit of math in there, but the math is, uh, I think, you know, with a little bit of effort, not that hard to absorb. But the principles stated in the paper center around this lack of trust in, uh, if you will, central bank managed fiat currencies. And that the presentation of perspective really follow the banking crisis that we had all experienced after the 2008-2009 collapse of many of our, our foundational fundamental institutions that we we all trust and trust is a, a word that we'll return to in this explanation. And so what many of the participants in the ecosystem sort of adhere to from a personal principles perspective Again, I say ethos because it is almost like a, a religion <laughs> to some degree, uh, because a lot of it is belief based, is that they believe that one, if you have something of value and you own it, it should be yours, like without any sort of restriction or encumbrance or conflicting uh, regulation attached to it, that thing that you own is yours. And you should be able to move that thing to whatever uh, sort of protective body of or enabled protective body that you can create. And having a central sort of uh, ownership mentality and services and functions and even regulations around that defies that ethos, defies that principle, that core principle. And because of that tension, one of the ways one can offer a, a, if you will, alternative solution to the problem of storage and recognition of that ownership is through this thing called a distributed ledger. Mm -hmm. A ledger being a very deliberate deliberate term in that the, the ledger records all transactions. So the, the genesis of that transaction, any 
debits and credits against that transaction. And using certain cryptographic protocols, at least a, a hashed identity, a hash being just a, a, a cryptographic interpretation of something that was plain text and is now a bunch of uh, numerically uh, idempotent, as we say, that is, if you if you take the hash function and you run it against that plain text, you'll get the same sort of cryptographic field again. Yeah. That gives some level of identity and ownership. So this hash owns this asset on this ledger. And because of the way that at least the, the blockchain chains for, for Bitcoin, uh, for Ethereum, for many of the popular cryptocurrencies and digital asset protocols we know today, uh, because of the way that they're constructed, all of that information is public. If you are a miner or participant within those ecosystems, you can see the ledger, you can see the hash, and you can see all of the transactions that transpired. And indeed, that's the way, that's the, the only way that distributed ledger technology works in the traditional sense. Now, there is a more recent set of uh, statements and principles and perspectives against that level of transparency uh, that the folks who are building with, I'll, I'll mention here in a second, these new novel chains, they, they state that, well, those traditional, if you will, traditional, not, not even 15 years old, blockchains are too transparent. In mm -hmm. fact, you, you see too much information and you can discern uh, just by virtue of, of you know, a, a little bit of deductive reasoning, who individuals are that own those transactions. That is, you can figure out All that right. Tremail is hash, a bunch of gibberish numbers and letters. They say, we don't want to expose so transparently all of those transactions because another core principle with ownership in kind is privacy mm. and being able to protect the identity of folks who might participate within the ecosystem. And so there's this new sort of advent of folks building chains based off a principle of zero knowledge proofs where you don't need to know everything about the transaction or the person performing the transaction to basically identify them with a high degree of certainty, not 100%, but enough certainty that the the probability that it is not the person that you think it is, is extremely low uh, to the infinitesimal amount. And so these zero knowledge proof chains are what many are considering to be sort of the next iterative innovation within the blockchain space whether or not they'll become popular and whether or not they will become something widely used uh i we we don't know it remains yes. to be seen i do i do think that there are some use cases therein that might be interesting but fighting against ethereum and bitcoin at this point is a pretty tough uphill <laughs> battle so yes. we'll see we'll see yeah. And from the government perspective, because obviously governments want to make their tax, do you have conversations at all with governments? Because this is an evolving landscape. Are there kind of forums where governments say, well, we want this or this needs to be in place or can we do this? Yeah, so great question. There, there are not a lot, but definitely enough companies within sort of the public sector space with regards to digital assets. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between tax bit and another partners as and I, I would hope to even go as far as to say friend of tax bits chain analysis so chain analysis for instance deals specifically with enforcement action to check against those who might be violating anti-money laundering rules or anti-terrorism rules or uh supporting basically finding 
who did what within uh, a set of transactions. Taxbit, on the other hand, works purely on the revenues. So we spend a lot of time with, in the, the United States here, the IRS, just trying to understand uh, what is the population of folks who are participating within the ecosystem, what is the potential, uh, like again, remunerative advantage to, to the US government as a result of that participation, and how do we go about creating systems, even down to the types of forms for reporting, and how those forms are absorbed into the IRS systems for accounting. Uh, that's the part of the, the equation where we participate today. We don't work so much on the enforcement side. Uh, it's not something that we, we, we sort of see Chainalysis as the leader and a strong partner there. And our our part is, okay, how do we how do we support, you know, recognizing and then collecting taxes against those revenue numbers? Fascinating topic, Tramel. I honestly had no idea about what was going on here and the kind of intricacies. So it's great for your explanation. And it's definitely uh, opened up more of an understanding for myself. So Tramel, what's your passion? What drives you? What makes you jump out of bed in the morning? Yeah, thanks for a question. I, I would say maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I, I resolved that the thing that drives me most within this industry is seeing people be successful within it. Be they folks who just have a passion for what we intend to do with these composable uh, ephemeral elements of zeros and ones, creating experiences and creating hopefully wonderfully impactful services and solutions, or if it's underrepresented voices who are looking to themselves be recognized as valuable and valued within the space, things both in that context and beyond where there are a gathering of, of like-minded folks who together can go further, faster, and, and more impactfully uh, than any of them could individually on their own. Things like that really excite me and really get me uh, sort of energized to be operating in the space. Brilliant. I love it. And we've had conversations offline around a topic which is quite big in space, which is diversity. Do you want to speak to that for a few moments? I can just state that I think that there's a lot of really qualified and both from academia, from the professional realm, and, and even from the non-public and private realm of speakers and thought leaders who have a lot to say about the advantages of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and not just our industry, but in general. But in my own personal experience, I would say that the thing that has been both impactful and sort of a guiding light for me, a North Star, if you will, is that when I walk into a room of CTOs, I rarely see very many people that look like me. Uh, in fact, the, the rooms are quite homogenous, not perhaps purposefully, but just by virtue of what has happened over many years of uh, systemic imbalance and asymmetry of opportunity. And I think that giving a, a space for conversations about why that occurred mm. and perhaps just having the, the discussion is important, but also going beyond the discussion to acknowledge that that probably isn't the way that we would all like it to be. Mm. And by the way, it, it probably is important to state that not just homogenous in creed, culture, and race, but also in gender identity. Yeah. And so 
having the the opportunity again to have more in-depth conversations about the why and then trying to find purposeful and impactful ways of addressing the how and getting to outcomes that would be better served for all of us not just for our our organizations on their own but the collective ecosystem the industry at large i think is is really important and so it's something that i i dedicate myself to and that i spend quite a bit of time focused on trying to bring those underrepresented voices forward that we might see a better version of ourselves in the future. Beautiful. Well spoken there. A very big topic. I know a lot of other CTOs have spoken to this topic as well. Coming on now, back to your leadership. What's your style of leadership? How do you like to lead in the space? I just wrote an article about this that oh, nice. will ho hopefully be published uh, as part of the GitHub README project very soon. So I, I won't I won't steal too much thunder from that publication. But what I will say is that it centers on this notion of adaptive leadership. And what I think is an interesting thing in our industry, uh, and again, not just within tech, uh, by and large, is that people have recently really embraced uh, almost to the point of religion, this notion of servant leadership. And servant leadership is amazing. It, it is something that I do think is truly uh, wonderful and it's a great perspective and a great set of uh, behavioral patterns for folks to embrace uh, that the leader sees themselves as serving the organization and serving those that uh, may report to them uh, or, or you know by and large everyone and anyone within the the spheres of influence that they have but I think it's also important to note that no one style of leadership all the time is likely the right thing and the example mm -hmm. that I use, is a, a person who is perhaps a, a fire person, a person who is there to address, you know, an incident that's that's happening in the moment. Uh, that person is, you know, if you're if you're perhaps a lieutenant chief of, of a fire station, you're probably going to want to hear feedback from the folks that you you are operating with in the case of an emergency. But you also likely have a, a set of experiences and a set of guidance criteria that you need folks to adhere to and you need to make sure that they're doing the right things for the safety the general safety of everyone not just the people that are you know in that fire station with you but the people who you're trying to save and rescue and though i you know i hesitate to compare anything that we do in tech with saving lives uh though there you know there are folks who work in healthcare or or in other or, or you know uh safety and support services that leverage technology that maybe indeed are saving lives. But by and large, many of us are just, you know, doing single page web applications. And so it's, it's maybe not that it, uh, that deep, but still mm -hmm. it's important to know that as a leader, you need to be able to give the people that you're working with what they need in that moment. And that doesn't mean that you are inconsistent. I think the consistency point is how you approach those problems and how you approach conversations. Your tone, your behavior, your comportment, all of that should be consistent, but you still need to be able to ideally like identify what's happening, the pattern that's happening in that moment and say, okay, in this moment, my team needs me to be more of a servant to them. But in this moment, my team really needs me to be more directive because we're, we're kind of floundering a bit and we're not quite coming to a conclusion doesn't necessarily need to be a consensus, but we don't have a conclusion that is clear and that is evident and that will get us to where our users need us to be in order to serve them as effectively as we could. And so I do 
where what I again call myself a, as an adaptive leader, I see that as a hallmark of being agile, adaptive, and also deeply self-aware to yeah. understand what your your personal limitations and personal failings are so that you also can bring on those individuals that can complement you and can support the, the gaps that you have in your knowledge and, and your ability and your capabilities. So that's my style. Love it. Love it. Agile leadership. I think that's absolutely right because everything's changing and we've got to change with the change that's happening. That's right. So Tramel, here's a question around growing pains of companies. All companies hopefully are growing and there's going to be pains involved. Any things that you've noticed in your tech leadership around how to mitigate those pains or even eliminate them? Yeah, I would say that no person's individual experience is going to be universally applicable. But that being said, I have a colleague, Claire Hughes Johnson, who was formerly the chief operating officer of Stripe, who just recently published a, a wonderful book uh, under Stripe Press, Scaling People, Tactics for Management and Company Building. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful set of guidelines and deep treatment of this notion of how do you scale an organization and how do you sort of mitigate against the typical default outcome of any startup for sure, which is failure. Most startups fail. And that's just something we know and something that we acknowledge. But for those that are successful, what do they do to fight against the tide of you know regressing to that line of mediocrity? And I think one of the things is clear concise communications. Another is making sure that the organizational operating system is something that is effective. And it can change, by the way, to the earlier conversation we were having, because the world, to your point, is always continually changing. And so being aware and being adaptive, being agile is critical. Also, making sure that you sort of fight against the tide of anti-patterns, things that look like they should be the right thing, but they're actually detrimental. For instance, we should have a lot of meetings about this topic because when people have a problem, they have meetings. Is it really the meeting that you need or is it that you need an outcome? And what's the best way of getting to that outcome? And so, again, I would not be so prescriptive, but what I would encourage the listener to do is to get as much signal and read as much and get as much exposure to different types of experiences. And, and as I mentioned, Claire's book is amazing because I think it gives a lot of uh, hyperscaled environment experiences. Claire is formerly of Google and then went to Stripe and, and was widely successful at both organizations. And, and I think that anyone would be doing themselves a disservice by not, if they're running a business or intending to be a leader, reading a tome such as that one. Fantastic. I was going to ask you a question around what books would you recommend for tech leaders? I think that's definitely on the list there. So coming on now to the closing arc of the podcast, any tips that you'd give to aspiring tech leaders out there and listening to this podcast of how to progress in their journey? Because you've had an interesting one. I think that notion that we spoke of at the beginning of being comfortably uncomfortable is the very best advice I can give. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations, things where you're not an expert, things where you're going to have to learn, things where you're going to perhaps expose a bit of your own opportunities for growth and really embrace those opportunities. Ask for help, reach out to people, build your network. I, I famously, uh, maybe some of your listeners have heard of uh, Laura Hogan, who's a speaker, uh, a tech leader and a, a friend and 
she speaks to this notion of building uh, a manager Voltron, of building leaders of different strengths and capabilities that combine uh, mm -hmm. within a circle to provide you with almost like perfect expert advice uh, that can help you recognize patterns and help you sort of bridge gaps that you may have. I think anyone who's looking for uh, success, for some definition of success, needs something like that. No one that I'm aware of does this on their own or is capable of doing it on their own. So uh, be uncomfortable, grow, learn, make friends, build competencies that are, you know, that you, you hold strongly, but that you're willing to redress or change based off of new information, first principles thinking, applying the scientific method, using rigor, and I think you'll be okay. Brilliant. Love it. Great advice. Which now brings me on to the question that you kind of already answered, which is any books, films, or documentaries that you would recommend that have been instrumental in your journey that you'd like to share? Yeah, we, we've already mentioned uh, Claire Hughes Johnson's recently released book, but I think Camille Fournier has uh, the Manager's Path, which is a great, great book. Um, and there are several books now from Will Larson talking through uh, sort of the, the leadership journey, the journey of a, a leader of organizations, as well as uh, folks within engineering, at least, that we call staff engineers and, and the path of the, the leadership-focused individual contributor. Uh, and I think Will's set of, uh, of writings not just the books, but also his his blog uh, mm. is incredibly insightful and very useful. So there there are three individuals that I think could probably cover a good set of foundational readings and insights for any leader within the space. Excellent, Tramel. Thank you for sharing that. Here's a fun question for you. I'm going to pretend to be a tech genie for a second. I'm going to offer <laughs> you a wish. What would you wish for, for your leadership, for your industry, for maybe the world? What's your wish? I think that if I had one wish, and of course the constraint being I probably couldn't wish for more wishes, <laughs> I, would, I would wish for understanding. I think that's one of the things that we we lack uh, greatly in this era of high digitization where people sort of uh, devolve into tribes and sort of cults of, of belief or just sort of the, this notion of, of not going deep enough to understand a different perspective. If we could if we could bridge that gap of understanding of what a person's intent and what their true meaning is behind the words, because none of us, not all of us, myself included, are, are elegant speakers, uh, though the, our, our intent is sound, maybe the, the presentation of that intent may, doesn't always come off as we'd like. Mm -hmm. If we could just bridge that gap or, or maybe break down that wall, I think we'd probably prevent a lot of of unintended conflicts that we have in the world today. So that, that would be my wish. Love it. Great wish. Going to make that come true for you and the world and everybody. So thank you for that, Tramel. And as a final full stop to the podcast, what's your key takeaway that you leave as a gift to our tech leader audience listening to this? Be open to new ideas. It's not a novel concept, but again, I think to that notion of understanding and just being able to contemplate, to understand, to challenge your own notion about how things should be. Uh, don't be a stalwart, don't be rigid, be flexible, be adaptive, be agile, as we've already said, but be open, I think is the thing that I would love for folks to take away from this conversation. 
Fantastic. Thank you for that, Tramel. It's been great having you on CTO Confessions. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Cheers. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.